Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up, social enterprise is seen as a growing way to do good in the world while running a successful business. It's also a big draw for millennials as they try to make a difference while making a buck. But first, Connecticut has been at the forefront of a national conversation about prison reform, an attempt to reduce the extraordinarily high numbers of black and Hispanic men in jail, often for low-level offenses. The effort is leading to changes in drug laws and sentencing guidelines and increases in transition services from prison back into the community. But another huge demographic issue remains. Prison gerrymandering is a term that refers to the way prison populations are counted. Instead of counting prisoners as residents of the town where they come from, often urban centers, they're counted in the towns where they serve their sentences, which are usually rural areas. This shapes the entire democratic process. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Again, our number is 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining us is Orlando Rodriguez, who's an associate commission analyst at the Latino and Puerto Rican Affairs Commission. Welcome back to our program, Orlando. Thanks for being here. Good morning, John. Thank you for taking on this issue. It's a very difficult issue to understand. It it is, and we want to spend some time with you and also with Peter Wagner, Executive Director of the Prison Policy Initiative, who joins us in studio as well. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I gave a a brief description of uh, prison gerrymandering. Maybe you can flesh it out a little bit for us, uh, Peter, before we get into some of the statistics and how it affects Connecticut. Sure. It's a problem that dates back to the beginning of the Constitution, because since for the last 200 years, the Census Bureau has counted the population for the purposes of political apportionment. But in this modern era, the census data is also used to draw legislative districts. So the Census Bureau counts incarcerated people as if they were residents of the prison. And 200 years ago, this is the strange thing, it didn't matter. There weren't that many people in prison. They weren't locked up that far from home. And we didn't use it to draw legislative districts. But now today, we um, need to have totally different data different data problems because of where people are being incarcerated. And the Census Bureau is still counting incarcerated people in the wrong spot. We've had people in prison, a lot of people in prison in America, for a very long time. Why is this something that we're just now paying attention to? Well, the prison population only really started to spike in the 1980s. So this affected the 1990 census and the 2000 and this most recent one. And the Census Bureau, to be honest, this took the advocacy community a couple of decades to get on top of. And the Census Bureau is a pretty slow, careful, but very slow agency. Is this uh, similar to the way that the population is counted for, say, colleges and universities? If if students live on campus, are they counted in their, uh, you know, say, in, in Yukon stores as opposed to California where they're from? Right. So students are counted in, students at stores are counted as residents of stores. And I, they've been Census Bureau has counted them that way since the 1950s. And I'll say, I think that makes sense because students are part of that surrounding community. They may leave after they go to college, but they may not go back to their parents' homes. They may go to a different community. And while they're in stores, they're encouraged to go into town to get a cup of coffee, to get an apartment, to get a job, to stay. None of those things are true for people that are locked up in Enfield. And the local officials in that town where they're going to school may very well affect how they live. They live in off-campus housing. It may very well be something that they want to have an impact on. Absolutely. And those 
students can also vote for or against those local officials on issues that are of concern to them. It's obvious that if people are, say, at a correctional institution in summers, they're not able to vote while they're in jail. Are they able to vote when they get out? Well, actually, so in Connecticut, everyone can vote when they get out of prison or jail. But in Connecticut, a lot of people actually who are locked up can vote. People that are um, in in the we don't really have a jail concept here in Connecticut, but people that are awaiting trial or serving short misdemeanor sentences can vote while they're locked up. They have to vote absentee back in their home districts. So, so let's get a little context around how this is affecting us here in Connecticut, Orlando, and maybe you can talk about some of the statistics. If, if you look at the graphs that I've seen that you've shared with us, it really is shocking. You end up with an awful lot of people who are originally from places like Hartford or, or Waterbury or Bridgeport serving time in areas that are absolutely nothing like those communities at all, and those smaller communities are reaping some of the benefits. Yes, uh, that's true. In Connecticut, about a quarter of all uh, people who are incarcerated are Hispanic. However, if you take a look at the adult population, only 13 percent of the adult population is Hispanic. So you have you know, twice as many uh, in prison as you would expect. Uh, and it's concentrated in areas like Summers where there are only 2 percent of the population is Hispanic and most of it is in jail. And when you look at the census numbers for a town like Summers, it, are are they counting as Hispanic people living in Summers even though they're spending their time in jail? Yes, they're part of the total population. Uh, the Census Bureau is currently doing a study to see if, if the prison population should be counted separately. But uh, the way the census goes, and we have a census once every 10 years, your residence is where you are on April 1st of the decennial year. Next time will be 2020. Uh, unless, let's say, you're a snowbird, in which case you would say uh, you would put your residence where you are most of the year. Okay. So one of these uh, one of the issues has to do with the, the racial and ethnic uh, makeup of the people who are serving the time in these, in these areas. But the, the larger question just really has to do with the population at large. I mean, you're ending up with, with these towns being unusually large for the real size of the population, for the number of people who are using the services, the prison is accounting for a a larger number of the population than perhaps it should. Yes. And it also goes back to how many, uh, to all legislators and how the size of a district. And by law, all districts have to be, legislative districts, uh, all the representative districts have to be the same size. They're about 23,000. And all the Senate districts have to be the same size. They're about 99,000. So when let, let's take a, a district that has uh, a prison. Let's take uh, Summers, and I have about 2,000 people in that prison. So when you're looking at the legislative district, um, the representative, you've got, you've got about 22,000 people there, but only 20,000, potentially at most 20,000 can vote, right? So if, if you have a two-candidate race, you would need 10,000 and one to vote. For you, but if you come, yeah. yeah. But if you come from another district where you don't have prisons, you're going to need more votes. So it, it takes less to get elected in a, in a district with a prison than it does in a district that doesn't have a prison. So uh, talk about s- some of the potential policy problems here, uh, Peter. Obviously, I think we just heard about one, right? It changes the way democracy actually works in a small town because the numbers are different than in other small towns that don't have prisons. What are some of the other policy problems that you see from all this? Well, it changes the priorities of the state legislature because of how it changes the politics of the individual districts. So in New York State, the majority of the seats on the crime and codes committees that were responsible for the criminal law were all dominated by legislators who had 
massive prisons in their districts. All their districts would have had to be withdrawn if they weren't inc- using prisoners as padding. But what this meant was that New York State, when they're in the middle of this big debate about should we repeal the harsh Rockefeller drug laws, instead these prison district legislators were saying, no, 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 let's keep these laws because we want to keep our industry, we want to keep our influence. Now, I'll expect legislators to say, no, no, don't do things that are bad for my district. But here we had a situation where a minority of legislators were opposing what the majority of the people of the state wanted because their districts were distorted. They were giving influence that was not proportional to their population. Well, let me flip the argument on its head a little bit and and try to play the role of someone from one of these communities, right? Um, We in Town X are taking on an enormous responsibility. We're going to have a prison population here, and that may come with it some uh, intended uh, good consequences and some maybe unintended bad consequences that come along. Shouldn't we get a chance to have a, a benefit from this beyond just uh, you know having some jobs in our community of DOC folks working at this uh, at this facility? Shouldn't there be something that comes back to us because we've decided to take on the burden of something that, frankly, a whole lot of other towns wouldn't want? Well, there, in part, there's payment in lieu of taxes to compensate communities for the burden of having a large nonprofit institution, but. If there's a flaw with the payment in lieu of taxes formula, the solution is to fix that. It's not to cheat at the ballot box. Orlando, you want to pick up on that a little bit? I mean, talk about some of the other policy implications that you see in all of this. Yes, there are uh, numerous state funding formulas. uh, And towns with prison, quite frankly, benefit to a certain extent because as you raise the population, your per capita income goes down. All right? And the lower your per capita income, the higher – uh, the amount of funding you're going to get from the state. So technically, yes, these towns uh, could potentially get more funding than towns that don't have prisons. But in Connecticut, we don't fully fund our mandates and uh, our, we don't follow our education cost sharing grant. So when people say it's going to affect my funding, the practically, in, in practically speaking, it doesn't because we don't follow the formulas anyway. We're talking with Orlando Rodriguez, who is from the uh, Latino and Puerto Rican Affairs Commission, uh, and also Peter Wagner, who's executive director of the Prison Policy Initiative. We're talking about something called prison gerrymandering and how it may be uh, influencing the democracy that we have here in Connecticut. We'd love to hear from you at 860-275-7266 if you're in an urban area or if you're in one of these suburban towns specifically that house one of Connecticut's prisons. You mentioned uh, earlier New York State. They're having this problem, Peter. Are there some other places that are actually attacking this? This issue head on and changing some of the rules? Sure. New York and Maryland have passed legislation that counted incarcerated people at home for redistricting purposes. They figured out where incarcerated people come from. That's pretty easy. The census data came. They did an adjustment and they drew districts as if incarcerated people had been properly counted at their home. Legal addresses were under state law, says they reside. So New York and Maryland did that and applied to the districts that are now in effect. Delaware and California have passed legislation that will apply to the districts that are going to be drawn in um, after the next census. And a number of other states have passed legislation in at least one chamber, including um, Rhode Island right next door. If you change this law and people who were housed at, and again, we've used Summers before because this is the largest number, housed at Summers were now not counted in the population of Summers, but they were, say, counted in the population of Hartford, of, of a district of Hartford. That also changes the demographics of that city. We already have extraordinarily low voter participation in cities like Hartford and Bridgeport. If you change the demographics of those communities by counting people who are from Hartford back in Hartford once again, now you've got another person who is counting toward the census rolls, unable to vote in that election in Hartford. Isn't that a problem? 
It's not for a couple of reasons, but first, again, about a third of the people that are locked up in Connecticut are able to vote, and they're do- if they're doing so, they're doing so absentee back at home. But districts, I'd argue, are not about voters. They're about representation. Children can't vote. All kinds of people can't vote, and but we can rely on our communities to speak our voices. And incarcerated people in summers are not being properly represented by the communities of opposing interest in that community. Orlando? Yes. Uh, it's, when we put the people, uh, let's say, from uh, Hartford or Bridgeport back in Hartford or Bridgeport, it doesn't necessarily mean that those towns will gain more representation because how we do the districts, divide them, it's going to depend on what the population is in 2020. Mm-hmm. And we don't know what that is. And towns like Hartford have been losing population. Also, it's going to affect uh, political boundaries not just for Hartford or Bridgeport or Waterbury but for everybody. Because you're redistributing uh, population. So everyone's pop, uh, boundary may change a little bit. Uh, but we, we don't have – we will still have 36 senators. We will still have 151 state representatives. The only thing that changes is their district boundaries. Uh, Peter, before we run out, run out of time, we've talked about what states can do. Um, is this a census problem? I mean should the U.S. census actually change the way it does its work? The U.S. Census Bureau absolutely should change how they do their work. They've made some changes they, into how they publish the data. They're looking at whether they can count incarcerated people at home. That's something they need to do. That's the best solution. But in the meantime, states like states like Connecticut can join New York and Maryland and fix this problem in their own state. Do you see this, as I suggested at the top of the program, as, as part of the continuity of the larger prison reform efforts that are going on in this state and others? It's part of the – it's part of the – continue trying to address the effects of mass incarceration here. There's so many people that we lock up. It's breaking how our democracy works here in Connecticut. But it's also the next step towards voting equality here in the state. Uh, Orlando, what is the Latino and Puerto Rican Affairs Commission doing to to end this practice of prison gerrymandering here? Well, uh, the first step was that um, the board uh, took this on as a policy agenda. At the Latino Puerto Rican Affairs Commission, our policy is driven by our board, which is made up of up to 21 appointees. They're political appointees. We have folks on the left and on the right. Uh, but both sides unanimously decided that this is an issue that affects the Latino community for the simple reason that there is a disproportionate number of Latinos incarcerated. Mm-hmm. And once you, you take them out of the pop uh, into the prison, you take them out of voting population and then Latino communities are harmed twice because you also take them out of the representation count. And don't forget also, people get released from prison and we only redistrict every 10 years. So if you're getting released from prison and going back to Middletown, it doesn't affect the representation of Middletown. Summers is going to have counted you the last census. And nothing that happens between the, the two senses will change that. I, I know that you have an event coming up uh, c- concurrent with the start of the next legislative session around, around February where you're going to be talking about some of these issues. Yes. Uh, we're going to have what we're calling Latino Policy Day on February 4th. It's a full-day event at the state capitol. And we have six different sessions. All uh, we're, we're trying to keep them concise. <laughs> we're going to really watch the time an hour on each topic, and they're all going to be topics that are of impact to Latinos in Connecticut. Orlando Rodriguez is Associate Commission Analyst at the Latino and Puerto Rican Affairs Commission. Thank you so much for sharing this data, and uh, once again, it's good to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks also to Peter Wagner, who's Executive Director of the Prison Policy Initiative. Thank you very much, Peter. 
Uh, coming up next, social enterprise is seen as a growing way to do good in the world while running a successful business. We'll talk with a few young entrepreneurs coming up next, where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Young people coming out of college today have a strong desire to do good in the world, but jobs with a social mission are not always easy to find. So many of them are starting their own businesses, but with a twist. They make money to support their goals instead of profit being their only goal. Social entrepreneurs are growing in numbers. Technological changes in the last decade are helping them network to tackle some of these social problems like inequality and prison recidivism. With Philanthropic and Public Funds Limited, social entrepreneurship might be the key to closing the inequality gap. They can scale up to meet some of these global needs. I talked with some of these entrepreneurs at an event for Reset, the Social Enterprise Trust, just a few weeks ago. I want to welcome uh, Kirk Savage in. He's co-founder of Send Help Back Home, a tech startup company. He's also a business manager for United Technologies. Kirk, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, John. I also want to uh, welcome in, uh, Hannah Sokoloff-Rubin, who's a senior at Wesleyan University and co-coordinator of the Wesleyan Doula Project. We'll be talking about your program in just a moment. And Hannah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And I want to welcome in Bashan Brown. He's a former student at the Wesleyan Center for Prison Education. He's currently pursuing an entrepreneurial venture called Trap House. Bashan, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. Uh, Bashan, I wanted to start with you. Uh, we just had a, a conversation about uh, Connecticut and some folks trying to change laws around prison. It's one of many efforts that are happening around the state right now to try to will really reform the way we think about mass incarceration here in our state. And I know this is something that obviously you're working on in your project and something that touches you very closely. I'm wondering, first of all, if you can talk about your experience. You spent six years incarcerated at Cheshire Correctional. Yeah, about six and a half. Yeah, six, six and a half. I was going to say, I'm sure every month probably uh, you can you can feel along the way. Yeah. If you don't mind me asking, what were you in for? Uh, well, in 2009, I was convicted of first degree robbery. And, uh, you know, I was um, had, a, had a pretty bad time, you know, and I robbed the bank, um, owed somebody some cash and was pretty desperate and you know, did what I had to do to get the money, and obviously that didn't work out for me. Mm. And, and so you ended up spending six and a half years in jail. What was your prison experience like? Well, my prison experience uh, varied, right? So um, a lot of times, you know, I mean, all prison experience is pretty bad. But, you know, thanks to Wesleyan, you know, I was able to transform my prison space, right? So my prison experience was one of educating myself and trying to get better and make sure I never make the types of mistakes that I made to get in that situation in the first place. So Wesleyan Center for Prison Education allowed me to imagine that I was in a college setting throughout four years of my prison sentence. So in 2011, I was accepted into the program, and I took four years of classes uh, in Wesleyan or at Wesleyan Center for Prison Education. So I spent a lot of my time educating myself. I'm wondering if you can explain to people the difference between being in prison and taking part in a program like that where you're where you're obviously working toward a goal. You're working with professionals from outside of prison to right. try to help you versus the prison experience if you're not taking part in something like that, if you don't have a goal like that in mind. What's the difference? I mean, the, the difference is um, it's a lot of wasted time in prison, right? So some people 
could sit on a bunk all day, watch TV, get out, play cards, play chess, and really not address the core of their issues, right? And some people want to address issues, but they don't have the resources to do it. So there's a lot of, um, there's not a lot of programs in prison that's going to really allow you to fundamentally address your issues. So there's some schooling. Um, there's also some uh, other type of programs that you could take. But, you know, the waitings, waiting lists are long, and prisons mainly deal in safety and security. So that's the main thing that they're worried about. They're worried about uh, securing you and making sure you don't harm their staff or each other when in reality – You know, if you really want to change the people in prison, you'll focus more on bringing more programming to the prison. You know, so um, so, you know, I think everybody should be able to get the opportunity that I had, you know, to um, take part of a quality, in this case, liberal arts education. So if anyone make wants to make the case for liberal arts it should be in the prison mm. hey, hey, tell, tell me a little bit more about that we talk about liberal arts education all the time here on the program because you know, there's been this move in education toward talking about stem you know science technology engineering math or talking about 21st century job skills you have to come out and know a trade or something like that but you, you are making a real strong case for a good old-fashioned liberal arts education learning a little bit of something about a lot of stuff absolutely I mean there's something valuable about interdisciplinary uh, learning where you're allowed to, you know, look at the world through different angles and different people's eyes. So you could really, you know, um, look at your own life through through a different lens, right? So, you know, getting a liberal arts education allowed me to really evaluate exactly where I'm at politically, socially, economically, on the spectrum, exactly where do I stand as a black man in America now as a felon in America? Like, how did it, how did we get here, you know, and what can I do to change the situation? So it's something valuable about learning um, psychology, um, literature, and, you know, just mixing and matching all types of education to, you know, custom make your experience. Like, if, if, if you're interested in preparing prisoners to return to society and be better citizens, then you all will push for liberal arts education in, in the prison system. Mm. And, and, and I won't ask you to do a promo here, but when I met you the other day, you said you spent a lot of time listening to public radio to him. I'm glad to know that we helped in some small way. <laughs> I mean, it, not, not just public radio. I yeah. spent a lot of time listening to you. Well, right? that's nice to hear. Um, <laughs> you know, in and, and, and public radio... Uh, in general, you know, help me raise my consciousness. You know, shows like that you had on uh, just previously, you know, I, I was tuned in, you know, and, and being tuned in to your show allowed me to be tuned in to the world and what's going on in the state in, in the state of Connecticut, right? Like that gerrymandering is, is a big issue. You know, you have um, people from different communities, m- mainly the major cities, right? Hartford, Bridgeport, New Haven, Waterbury, in prison, but not being counted as being um, citizens of, the, of, their, of their own city. And you have a lot of resources um, that should be used to, um, in their city that's being used in places like Cheshire, Summers, you know, where they're counting these bodies as being part of their population when in reality um, that's just not the case. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, you know, they spend something like $50,000 
for uh, to incarcerate a man in Connecticut, and you know that those resources could be spent better um, in in the communities where these gentlemen came from, or, and and the, and the women as well. We're talking with Bashan Brown. He's a former student at the Wesleyan Center for Prison Education. He's currently pursuing an entrepreneurial adventure called Trap House, which we'll be talking about in just a moment. Before we turn away from this, real quickly, Kirk Savage, who's here as well from Send Help Back Home, you were nodding along with this this conversation that we were having about. Uh, uh, liberal arts education, when we talked at that event for Reset, this came up a little bit. And this notion of, of how we prepare people for a workforce is, is it's one of the biggest conversations, not just in education, but in America today. I mean, wh- where do you stand on all this? Because, I mean, people want to have job skills coming out at the same point. You know, but Sean's making a really strong case for, for a liberal arts education. Right. So I, I smirk because in the green room, we were just talking, and I said, I want you to be an engineer. <laughs> so that's, that's the start of where I stand. I, I believe in kind of having a hard, tangible set of skills that you can come out with. And for me, it's once you establish yourself, then you have more opportunity to then expand, explore different facets of life. Um, it's just my thought. Not saying it's right or wrong, right? It's... it's uh, you can drive on the right side of the road or the left. We just have to choose one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all have right. to choose one. We, we all have to choose one. So, <laughs> so um, for me, it's it's not about so much the path you take. It's the fact that you're on a path that that matters. So, <laughs> I, I wonder, H- Hannah, do you have a thought on this? Obviously, you know, um, a Wesleyan uni- University education. It's it's the ultimate like liberal arts education. Wesleyan is about trying to learn about the entire world around you. Do you have a thought on this in this entire notion about the value of a liberal arts education for somebody coming out of school? Yeah, well, I was, uh, Kirk and I were laughing sort of across the room only because I'm a history major. Uh, so we were having sort of a, a history liberal arts major versus engineering major type of conversation. Um, you know, I really think that it comes down to doing what you're passionate about and being able to use it. Uh, so when I first got involved in social entrepreneurship, I thought, you know, I, I really have not a lot of experience in hard sciences or even in, you know, math as applied data analysis. How am I going to use what I do know? But I'm a history major who studies social movements and revolutions. So if I'm trying to think about how to sustainably, sustainably be part of a movement to change current social norms, that knowledge matters. And I do a lot of creative writing. So my ability to explain the same work that I'm doing in really different words to different people in a way that's going to make that resonate, that's been incredibly useful at panels, at grant pitches, and things like that. Um, So I think that it comes down to finding a balance of the tools that you need and also partnering with people who are going to help complement the skills that maybe you haven't spent time in college learning. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, just, just hearing you talk, right, there are definitely some skill set there that I'm lacking, that I'm, I'm welcoming just to say, I think you could help me get to a better place. So definitely appreciate and respect the different kind of points of view. Uh, we're talking today with Kirk Savage, uh, who's the co-founder of Send Help Back Home. It's a tech startup. Uh, Hannah Sokoloff-Rubin, who is a senior at Wesley and also co-coordinator of the Wesleyan Doula Project, and Bashan Brown, a former student at Wesleyan Center for Prison Education. We'll be talking about his venture called Trap House in just a moment. You can join us at 860-275-7266 as we talk about social entrepreneurship. So why don't you tell me about your project, uh, Hannah, just to, to get us started here? 
Yeah, so the Wesleyan Doula Project is an organization that trains students and a few community members to work as non-medical support people for women receiving abortions. Um, so I was talking uh, to Kirk about this earlier, and he said, oh, I, I thought doulas did birth. Um, this is a very common understanding. Doulas do. I'm also a birth doula. Um, but the Wesleyan Doula Project is one of the pioneering organizations that are part of what we call a full-spectrum movement that tries to make doula care accessible to everyone for every type of pregnancy outcome. So that's everything from abortion to miscarriage, to stillbirth, to birth for adoption, um, to really anything where someone might need extra support and advocacy and feeling agency uh, in a reproductive decision uh, or in a medical situation. From what I've learned about social entrepreneurship over the years, um, a project like yours is meant to fill a type of a market need. That's why it's a that's why it's a business venture as opposed to just you know I I just want to do something good. A lot of people want to do something good, and sometimes they they see a market need, and sometimes it's not necessarily there. Obviously, you're trying to fill a niche that's not there. Yes. So one of the reasons I've devoted all of my time as a student to this project is because I think it both hits a level of social justice in me that's really important and treating people like people and making sure that that happens. But in this situation, treating a person like a person actually helps fix a broken healthcare system, especially around reproductive health care, in that we have a problem where the care that is being provided really isn't meeting the needs of the people who are receiving it, which is therefore perpetuating a situation where follow-up care isn't able to reach that. Um, and so what we do, in addition to giving people this opportunity um, from Wesleyan students, get to do really important work, but we're also, most importantly, serving patients, greatly increasing their experiences and increasing their safety um, by being able to create open lines of communication and help them be more comfortable with what's happening. And we get feedback from doctors and nurses all the time that we're really helping um, their flow better. They bring, they actually bring in fewer med techs on the days that we're going to be there because we're able to help the process go more smoothly. So we see ourselves kind of targeting all possible people involved. What are some of the things that you're learning uh, through starting up this project that maybe you didn't know going in? What are some of the hurdles you've had to jump over? Um, as, as some people have told me when I first started kind of bringing the Wesleyan Doula Project towards a social entrepreneurial end, um, it's not the easiest sell, right? You got to explain what a doula is. You got to talk about a lot of things that we don't always like talking about or that has a lot of different emotional nuance. Um, and what I'm learning is that this, this is a project that can really resonate with different people. But you need to think both around the work that we're doing and around what sustainable leadership and sustainable development looks like. Those are not words that I used to be comfortable saying. Those are words <laughs> that I now wield regularly. Um, so I'm really challenging sort of the boundaries of both the work that I'm doing and the ways of expanding and networking that work to try to take in as many different needs as possible. People throw around the word sustainable. You are uncomfortable saying it. What does it mean to you now? Um, so I think that students are in a particularly good position to do this type of work. Our goal overall is to also provide birth doula services and postpartum doula services. But with a, a college campus lifestyle, it can be hard to do that. So abortion doula services, first of all, are the niche that need this care the most. Um, and second of all, is also something that we can really do. Um, but we also have a very short institutional memory. I'm graduating this year. Um, you have people doing a lot of different things. You have people taking their engineering classes. That takes up a lot of time, not to mention all of my history papers. So sustainability for me means creating a vision that both has the flexibility to read in new people and a changing social discourse, but also um, 
that's going to hold that has legs that's going to hold this organization when I'm not here anymore when other people so we have a a leadership system that brings in someone for two years. This is my second year. We also have a sophomore on board now, so she'll be there as time goes on and a junior. Um, so sustainability for me means creating a, a platform that, that we can continue to stand on. I want to quickly get to a phone call here. Steve is calling from Brantford. Hi there, Steve. Go ahead. You're on where we live. Hey, how are you, John? Good. What's up? Um, so your previous uh, uh guest who was talking about uh, the importance of a liberal arts education for people in the prison population and the underserved population. I think that's a really important point to get across. Um, as somebody who grew up in a very wealthy town outside of Hartford, went on to live on Sargent Street in Hartford for five years in a predominantly uh, African community african-american and jamaican community and then went on to serve six months in prison at carl robinson um uh, earlier in life i can tell you point blank that skills are great but unless the underserved community communities and populations have the same sort of experience in in the world um that maybe people with white privilege get and maybe it's easy to poo a uh, a liberal arts education because it's a lot of what people are exposed to who are grew up in educated or middle or upper class um, households are already uh, exposed to. For folks who do not have that, those sorts of resources, don't grow up in those communities, they're starting at a big disadvantage as far as the world that they live in and the and and the exposure they have to the things that that others that others take for granted. You know, you hear the or it's easy to say you should become an engineer when you've got so many friends who have English majors or were English majors now being a barista at Starbucks. But that sounds like a particularly white problem where you've got folks growing up in the inner cities who, you know, living in Hartford and living in the, the north end of Hartford, there were kids there that didn't know what Bushnell Park was, didn't know who Mark Twain was, had never been out of their block. And so mm. to give people the liberal arts perspective to start with, it really gives people a grasp on the greater the world outside city limits. Hey, thank you very much for your phone call. I, I really appreciate that. I'm wondering, Bashan, if there's anything that, that he said that particularly resonates with you. I mean, this, this notion that um, there are an awful lot of people in, in communities uh, in our cities that don't really have some of the education or the life experiences that you were able to get. I mean, you you, you literally you went to Cheshire and you got this amazing education through Wesleyan. I mean, do you would you have gotten this education if not for Wesleyan while behind bars? Well, I wouldn't have gotten this type of education, right? So, you know, um, Wesleyan education is a high quality education, you know, and I, this wasn't my first um, college experience. So in 1997, I was accepted to Morehouse College, and I went there for a year. Um, and, you know, I didn't have the money to go back. And, like, that started this spiral of uh, bad choices. Like, so once I didn't have the money to go back to Morehouse, I said to myself, I will hustle my way back to college. Like, I will sell drugs to get back into college. And that, after that choice, just a series of bad choices came after that. Um but my my experience at Morehouse compared to my experience at, at Wesleyan is is totally different. So, um, you know, there's something special about Wesleyan. There's something special about the campus. There's something special about the students there. And uh, Hannah was a writing tutor for me. Um, she came in, I think, for my performance Shakespeare class. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, 
you know, so I, I completely understand what, what the caller is saying. Like, there's, there's, there is so much in liberal arts education that allow me to look at myself and my place in the world and really want to make a change in the community um, that I came from, a community that I helped destroy with some of my actions, mm-hmm. right? It was like, uh, well, how can I help repair some of the damage that me and, you know, my generation has caused in the community? You know, um, you know, we terrorize the community, you know, um, random acts of violence, you know, selling drugs. There's a lot of externalities that come with selling drugs. So it's just not the exchange between buyer and seller, but it's the externalities and the people being affected. That's not a part of that trade. That's really important. You know, when I look at the north and the Hartford or um, different areas in New Haven and see all the violence and things like that. I, I look at those situations now, probably be because probably because of my education, and, and and wonder how I can help and um and help solve some of these social ills. Well, when we come back from a break, we're actually going to talk about your project, Trap House, and also talk about the project that Kirk Savage runs called Send Help Back Home. Uh, it's a tech startup company. We're talking about social entrepreneurship and some of the things that it can help do in our communities. If you want to join our conversations, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's program, the Republican Senate Minority Leader Len Fasano and the House Minority Leader uh, Themis Clarities are in the midst of a budget battle with Governor Malloy and legislative Democrats. Both leaders will come in studio shortly after their party released a proposal to close a $350 million budget gap. That's our conversation tomorrow. Hope you can join us. We're talking today about social entrepreneurship, a lot of pressing problems in the world being solved by young entrepreneurs like the ones we have on the program today. Hannah Sokoloff-Rubin from Wesleyan University, Bashan Brown, a former student at the Wesleyan Center for Prison Education, and his venture called The Trap House. And uh, Kirk Savage is co-founder of Send Help Back Home. Uh, Kirk and I were on a panel together at an event for Reset Social Enterprise Trust uh, just a couple weeks ago, and we talked a bit about your, your project. Why don't you tell us about what Send Help Back Home does, Kirk? So Send Help Back Home is basically a web mobile platform that allows um, folks to help their friends and family back home. So what is back home? It's basically geared towards immigrants, and um, immigrants come usually to a more prosperous country. They seek a living, and they look to support their family and friends. So what we are doing is we're trying to help out and lower the cost of um, supporting their family back home. Uh, One of the things that really brought this to the forefront is I personally help some of my family back in Jamaica. And I was, you know, I was at a Western Union one day, standing in a long line, and I realized, wow, I'm going to send 50 bucks, and it's going to cost me like 10. That's like 20%. That's robbery. Where else would you pay 20% for a service like that? And thought, hmm, there must be a better way. So my partner and I, we pulled together 
We've been kind of utilizing our resources, our training, et cetera, to try to create a business that takes advantage of some of the technology out there today. You see Bitcoin, you see the world, and the technology is really opened up, and, and there's opportunity to really simplify and, and have a more cost-effective trade for remittances. So we pulled together some resources, and we've targeted a business that allows the sender to uh, provide resources for their family for free. Uh, the second piece of, of our business that we think is kind of key is that um, instead of sending cash, we have a vendor network in country where instead of you sending 10 bucks, you send a care package, and that care package is picked up in, in the form of goods and services. So, for instance, I can send 50 bucks to a supermarket, and I know that my family has eaten versus sending them 50 bucks, and they might buy shoes or cell phone or something else. And an important piece of that, too, is that it takes into account the the end users. Theoretically, you're putting money into the Jamaican economy when you're sending money back there as well. You know that someone on the other end of the line is going to be actually engaging in business and doing good work on that end. So it's it's helping the cost structure, but it's also helping, you know, support businesses in the place that you're sending home, uh, help to. Yeah, I think it's targeted economic development because there is a vendor in that country that's going to receive funds, and at some point that money will be reinvested in the community. So I, th- I think there's multiple kind of facets of how this helps. I think most importantly, though, is the, for the folks that can least afford it, right, the immigrants that have come here that are trying to do good, we're trying to create an avenue, a movement for them to be able to support their family better at a lower cost. I, I asked Hannah this question. I'll ask you, what are some things that you've learned and some challenges you've had to jump over as you get this up and, uh, up and running? It's, it's funny. Um, I come from a very kind of regimented thought process, and we laughed about that, right, engineering and project management. And um, it's easy in my mind to see the endpoint. But as I've learned, that endpoint is not reality. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, it's, it's been it's, – it's the, it's the learning, it's the movement, it's the involvement of other people with different ideas that's really driven this concept, this business, to a far greater level than I had, right? So – as a project manager, I, I wanted to support X amount of people, and I wanted to do it in this way. But having the involvement of, of different uh, mindsets and just being in that social enterprise space has really pushed and, and drawn this business into a better place. And do, do, do you ever worry that you are putting your own resources, your own time and your energy, your own ideas into a project, which very well may be co-opted by some bigger organization. I mean, you said Western Union, you know, eventually enough organizations like yours, Western Union is going to have to change its business model, right? They're, they're not going to have people standing in line anymore. Do you see maybe moving the big companies that do this sort of work, or are you at all worried about people stealing your good ideas and putting more money behind them? So I would say that's my hope. Yeah. My hope is that we change the world. My hope is that we we open the eyes of some of these large companies that the level of profit that they're taking is not necessarily valid. So for us, it's, 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 a, capital, it's a capitalist idea, right? There's a, a component there, but it's also an idea that has a social good. And if we can instigate kind of that good and really drive the market, then our hope is that the bigger guys shift. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a part of the win. But Bashan, how about you? Tell us about uh, Trap House. What is it you're doing? So Trap House, in its original meaning, means a place where you could go and score drugs, like almost like a crack house. Uh, So I reappropriated the word. 
And the acronym stands for Transforming, Reinventing, and Appropriating People. And please don't push back on appropriating, Hannah. <laughs> That's a, a hot topic word like on Wesleyan campus. But, you know, I, I really do believe that I am going to appropriate people, people that was destined for the prison system. Um, it is, you know, my vision that they become entrepreneurs. So Trap House works in communities with high rates of drug activities, uh, get people to First, recognize their passion and recognize their entrepreneurial spirit so we can redirect that into a formal market, mm. into a legal market. So basically, um, you know, there's a lot of people out hustling right now. And, you know, uh, in the communities that I want to serve, it's, a lot of times it's illegal narcotics. So I want people to recognize the skills uh, that, that are behind those type of sales and really um, pivot that into – into the legal market. We interviewed, and I don't know if you heard this, um, uh, our reporter Jeff Cohen interviewed a young man who unfortunately was killed on the streets of Hartford not so terribly long ago. And he profiled him and he talked about hustling and he talked about how hard it was and the the types of ingenuity it took to carve a life out of doing things that are illegal but, but are indeed entrepreneurial in the same way. You seem to be harnessing some of this this creative energy. I mean, there's a lot of people out there who work really, really hard to do things that they shouldn't be doing, but at the end of the day, those are skills. Absolutely. Those are skills, skills that you use, you know, every day. So you have um, people that have sales forces and, you know, they have marketing skills. Uh, they know how to promote their product. You know, they, they, they know how to, um, you know, really – really hustle, you know, and a lot of times if we use those same skills and that same energy and that same passion and that same drive um, to hustle in the right way, you'll get a lot further because at the end of the day, you know, um, not many people come away from the drug game winners, right? Most people end up in in prison for um, lengthy sentences, sometimes, sometimes short bids, but at the end of the day, um, those activities are going to lead you to prison. So, you know, we we um, I'm trying to harness the capitalistic winds that that blow through the ghetto and push people <laughs> on corners. Yeah. Well, I, I speaking of har- harnessing, uh, Hannah, I'll turn to you for the last couple minutes here. Uh, another thing to to maybe harness is this enormous amount of energy that is on college campuses today. People who do want to change the world, who who aren't interested in just getting out of school and making enormous amounts of money. Um, obviously, people need to pay off those college loans, and people need to make a living and maybe buy a house someday. Can you talk about that balance for the, the students you work with and are close to about wanting to change the world and also wanting to kind of make a buck doing it? Yeah. Um, there's a quote by E.B. White that someone told me about a year ago that says, every day I wake up and I can't decide if I want to change the world or enjoy the world, and it makes it very hard to plan the day. Uh, I feel that every day that I wake up. Um, And I think that that is definitely fomented at Wesleyan um, in a community of people who both are really individually driven and also feeling like they're being driven for a collective purpose of improving things. Um, That's actually one of the reasons that I think the Wesleyan Jewel Project has been so effective. We're one of nine organizations that does sort of any type of full spectrum jewel work. And we're one of the most successful. We have 
25 currently trained doulas working uh, two days a week in two different local clinics. We get requests for expansion all the time. Um, and one of the questions is currently our capacity. Um, you asked earlier, like, what are the challenges is figuring out how much more we can do and still be meeting the, the level that we need to. But I think that one of the reasons this project gets at sort of that challenge of wanting to improve the world um, and do what you need to do in the world to do that successfully is that we really are um, improving circumstances for everyone involved in that we are improving the care that's being provided because it can be more individually catered to the individuals receiving it. We're greatly improving the individual experience. And that is, you know, for me, I think the most driving reason that gets me out of bed and driving to clinic early every Saturday morning is that I believe that people should be treated like people. And I have this opportunity to really change that reality, whether I'm with someone for 12 minutes or half an hour. Um, it's rarely really longer than that. But at the same time, I'm 21 years old and I've spent three years working in many different clinic environments. I've been in situations that have been incredibly challenging and incredibly thought provoking. And I can talk about that. And I want to go on and do reproductive health work. And sort of one thing I've been thinking about is when we talk about education reform, which is also very popular on my campus, you know, everyone wants to go do Teach for America or be in a classroom so that they can go change it. And I want to be in the reproductive health care system so that I can change it. Um, and this opens a door for me to do that. And our, our uh, volunteers um, from the university, it's really a diverse group of people and m all women. And they're getting really direct tracks into interpersonal fields, into the medical health field that isn't always easy to access. Um, so I think one thing I tell the doulas is this is about driving a bigger purpose, but use it in your job interviews. Write it on your resume. I mean, I think that there is a way to do both of these things. And part of that is organizing on a communal level and like being an organization that has a lot of different people working toward a common goal, but also empowering individuals. That's what we're doing. I mean, we learn as doulas how to empower people to advocate for what they need. And I hope for my volunteers that they get the same. And and maybe maybe that binary isn't there. Maybe you can change the world and in, enjoy the world because you're actually enjoying what you're doing, which is a good thing as well. Uh, Hannah Sokoloff-Rubin and her project is the Wesleyan Doula Project. Bashan Brown, whose project is Trap House. Kirk Savage, whose project is Send Help Back Home. We're going to have links to these projects on our website, wnpr.org slash where we are. Thank you all very much. That was a great, fun conversation. Thanks, John. Our program today, produced by Lydia Brown and Betsy Kaplan. I'm John Dankosky. This is where we live.